And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. I'm Maggie. And we are Rebel Girls Book Club, and today we are reading a poem that Maggie will introduce. Today we are reading a poem called For Consuela Antifascista, which is by Claudia Jones. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because Claudia Jones is the subject of the book The Political Life of Black Communist Left of Karl Marx, which is a book by Carol Boyce Davies. And Harmony and I read the first chapter of this academic text at the very, very end of last year. And we're really interested, I think, by Claudia Jones's life and her work as a a communist, as an anti-fascist, as an anti-imperialist. But part of the reason we were drawn to her to begin with was because we also knew that she was a journalist and she was a poet and she was a diarist. And those aspects of personal and self-expression were a huge part of her work. But we didn't have a chance in that first episode to actually look at any of her literary work. So today we are reading this poem by her with a little bit of context from that book by Carol Boyce Davies. Although I tried to avoid too much context because I was hoping to be able to create some analysis that wasn't just regurgitation of Davies' thoughts. We'll see how effective that actually is. The thought about this poem from Boyce Davies is that she thinks it's likely that For Consuela Antifascista was written while Jones was imprisoned at Alderson. I think that the woman that the poem is dedicated to, Blanca Canales Torresola, was also imprisoned at Alderson. I'm not sure if it was at the same time, but basically this is just a poem that is largely about Jones's thoughts about kind of the ties between anti-imperialism and some of the women specifically who were doing that work in other parts of the Caribbean. Yeah. So what were your impressions on this poem? I guess aside from what it was about, how, what did you first think of reading this poem for the first time? I think that I was a little swayed by this poem because I know that part of the reason that Jones's work isn't widely available for for literary work is because it was kind of critically panned and it wasn't necessarily viewed as being important to the literary canon so much as it's viewed more historically as being important and insightful into Jones's work. So I didn't really know what to expect. There's this very controversial article about her on the Poetry Foundation that was written in 2008 or something that was kind of like, she isn't the most aesthetically driven or basically good poet to, to summarize it. So I didn't really know what to think. And I was pleasantly surprised with the poem. I thought that some of the imagery was really beautiful. I was also really interested into how Jones tied nature into some of this idea about anti-imperialism and feminism with the harmonies looking it up. Specific, it was specifically the stanza about that was listing flowers that I found very interesting And in some ways, I think it's just a a really nice poem from one activist to another honoring her work and 
thinking critically about how all of this work kind of interrelates to each other. I think poems are hard to analyze. So this is going to be one of those episodes, Maggie. <laughs> it's very pretty. I have no idea what it's saying. I mean, I kind of do. I felt while reading this, damn, do I need more context for everything. So that being said, Maggie, do you want to do this line by line? Yeah, but maybe we should read the poem first for people. Do you want to just switch off stanzas? Okay. You can start. Okay. For Consuela Antifascista. It seems I knew you long before our common ties. Of conscious choice through under single skies, those like us who, fused by our mold, became the targets as of old. I knew you in Jarama's hills, through men and women drilled, in majesty whose dignity rejected shirts and skirts of dimity. I heard you in Guernica's songs, proud melodies that burst from tongue, says yet unknown to me, full thronged with liberty. Anti! Anti-fascistas! That was your name. I sang your fame, long for my witness of your bane of pain. I saw you in the passion flower, in roses full of flame, pure valley lily whose bower marks resemblance to your name. O wondrous Spanish sister, long locked from all your care, listen while I tell you what you strain to hear, and beckon all from far and near. We swear that we will never rest until they hear not plea, but sainted sacrifice to set a small, proud nation free. Oh, anti-fascist sister, you whose eyes turn to stars still, I've learned your wondrous secret. Source of spirit and of will, I've learned that what sustains your heart, mind, and peace of soul is knowledge that their justice can never reach its goal. So my reading of the poem, like I said, is largely that this is a poem of solidarity between two activists. But I think that to me, one of the most interesting parts, not to skip all the way to the end, but I do think the last stanza is really to the, the key to the poem. This idea that I've learned what sustains your heart is that their justice, the, the fastest fascist justice, what that definition is, can never actually reach its goal. And therefore, sacrifice and the work that it requires to go against that is worthy and noble. I think to me, that's sort of a thesis statement of what's happening with the poem. And I found that very powerful, this idea that the goals of fascism, that defining it as being justice is just so untenable, it can never happen. And that that knowledge is what sustains these women activists that they're, that she's writing about and that she views herself to be as. Yeah, thank you for highlighting that. I think reading the poem out loud helped me understand it a little bit better because it it is reminiscent of chants that you might hear at a protest, I think. So that was definitely better for my comprehension. And I agree that justice thing, reading it out loud just now, hammered into me the ways in which these women who are two women who, even though, well, Claudia Jones is from a Caribbean country, but then she also lived in America and England. So she she not only is from a colonized country, but she also has had the experience of being a Black American in primarily white Western countries. And I feel like both of those experiences together are a lot about taking away somebody's culture and somebody's history. And that's really what fascist societies do with their justice. Their their justice is there to berate an entire people into not being anymore. Can we take this line by line, though? Because there was there were lots of context things that I need to talk through, Maggie. So, 
or stanza by stanza. We can do stanza by stanza. The first stanza, it seems I knew you long before our common ties of conscious choice. Through under single skies, those like us who fused by our mold became their targets as of old. What do you think about that stanza? To me, I think that's really Jones cementing her connection to Blanca Torresola, saying, I I feel as though I knew you, that we were sort of common spirits even before, potentially, you could argue that they were imprisoned together, that they were imprisoned in the same place, but basically that they were kind of created of this same mold, this anti-fascist mold, before Claudia Jones had really consciously defined herself that way or maybe started to do this work that there was something inherent between the two of them that was very similar but then also the ending of the stanza to me is very much the binding of persecution that we are facing because we are going against the dominant power and this has always been the story yeah and I don't I didn't read all of the Claudia Jones book so and I don't remember the first chapter that we read so I don't know how much Claudia Jones played with identity But I feel like outside of anti-fascist politics, both she and Blanca Canales Torosola are in a a marginalized group of some sort because Blanca Blanca was doing her activism as U.S. imperialism was happening to her country. And Puerto Rican still doesn't have an independent government. And she was a part of the Nationalist Party. Her thing was, let's make these, let's make our own government. So she is a marginalized class of people under this system in the same way that Claudia Jones would have been under her Caribbean government that she lived in and then also under an American and English government. Okay, the next line, the next line I want to explore with you. Because this is, this is where I'm like, fuck, I'm not smart enough and I don't know history. Okay, so I knew you in Jarama's Hills through men and women drilled in majesty whose dignity rejected shirts and skirts of dimity. Okay, so I did look this part up. Jarama's Hills is, is a reference to a Spanish Civil War battle. But I don't really understand it. I just know that the Spanish Civil War was, we are anti-fascist. And it was fascism versus socialism, communism, anarchism. And it set the stage for World War I. But I don't know anything else about it. And then also, this stanza, I looked up what the word dimity means. And apparently it's a weird type of fabric that, and I quote from Wikipedia. (laughs) I'm a scholar. Dimity was a collective term for figured clothes of harness loom decorated with designs and patterns. It was a strong cotton cloth with various stripes and illustrations. It was only bleached or washed after loom, less often dyed after looming, unlike frustrarian, usually dyed. I have no idea what that means. I don't know why they're not accepting clothes of Dimity. Okay, Maggie, do you have thoughts? I do have thoughts. I'm sorry. That was that was funny. Honestly, you basically summarized everything I know about the Battle of Harama too, which is, you know, basically that it was the fascist races, the anti-fascists, and a, and a huge part of the Spanish Civil War, which is again referenced later in the next stanza, because in one of the most famous battles of that war, Guernica. I think that, I think that the part about Dimity, and this could be wrong, is that to me, at the very least, it seemed like a rejection of the prim and proper societal standards. It's a very decorative sort of cloth. There's there's usually extra 
patterns embedded into it. And it's kind of trying to think about the words that I want to say. To me, I think it feels kind of superfluous. There's almost extra decoration on top of the substance of it. And I think that to me, the, the point of this stanza is very much we've known each other through all of these great battles, referencing the Spanish Civil War, I'm assuming for a reason, but I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, I don't know it. <laughs> Except for the fact that, you know, she's talking about a Spanish woman and a Puerto Rican woman. To say, we've, we've been together, our, our causes have been parallel for so long and for so many years, that we've all been here fighting together. And I think something that this stanza really highlights to me is something that Boyce Davies talks about in her analysis of this, which is that she was talking about the fact that this felt like one of her first poems and one of her first pieces of writing that really showcases the fact that for Jones, anti-imperialism was truly an international movement, that it wasn't just kind of US and Britain based. It wasn't just about the Caribbean, that it was truly global. And so I wonder if some of these references to the Spanish Civil War sort of are nods to that and tie into sort of that ideology, that idea of anti-imperialism. But I think it's about this idea that Dignity and integrity come first over creature comforts, which I think that you can maybe argue that dignity is being used to represent here. That wasn't my most sensical take, but hopefully you got something out of that. I just wish I knew more about dignity. Can if 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 somebody if somebody knows anything about historical clothing, could you could you email us? Y'all never do, but I really wish you would. Please let me know. But yeah, I get what, I can see the creature comfort thing. I also just feel like, though, there has to there has to be more. There has to be more than dimity. But I don't know what it is. I didn't know that Guernica had a major battle in the Spanish Civil War, but I do know. I don't know when this poem was written either. Do we know when this poem was written? I don't know, and I was wa- wrong. It wasn't Guernica. Uh, Guernica wasn't part of the Spanish Civil War. Guernica was part of World War Two. That's what I was going to say. So yeah, apparently in World War II, Nazi Germany bombed Guernica and it inspired a Pablo Picasso painting and there was a bunch of different music that came out of it. So I thought maybe that's what was going on. But again, I don't know anything about history. So that stanza that we're referring to, by the way, just so you all can follow along with us is, I heard you in Guernica's songs. Proud melodies that burst from tongues, and yet unknown to me, full thronged with liberty. Maybe that could be, if this poem was published after World War II, kind of a collective globalist joy about defeating fascism because people were fighting the actual Nazis, which are, in today's society, the the premier example of fascism. Okay, the next stanza is anti-anti-fascistas that was your name i sang your fame long for my witness of your bane of pain so before you go maggie <laughs> i have thoughts about this because reading this poem ooh, and and the context after it really struck me how much i feel i don't i don't know if this is explicitly addressed but i feel like this poem talks about the idea of ideas being global, the idea of work, the idea of written work and theory having a global imp- effect. Because prior to this stanza, what we're really seeing, as we've kind of talked about, is Jones growing up with this idea of anti-fascism, feeling connected to it, even though she has yet to 
be a part of any major revolution at the point of, of before this is going on. So that wasn't sensical. <laughs> but she's yet to be a part of, of these, these movements, like fighting for Puerto Rico. So this idea of, of growing up with ideas and then publishing a poem all about globalist anti-fascism and how that connects to women who also happen to be women of color and how that affects us in a global world really struck me. This idea of literature transcending that and being a, a way to get other people to commit to your cause. Does that make any sense or am I rambling a lot? <laughs> I think I get where you're coming from. I think that I had a similar thought about the stanza, but maybe from a slightly different perspective, which is that I think that the stanza really showcases the idea that oppressed peoples have much more in common with each other than the dominant oppressing oppressing class wants us to believe that we do. And this idea that even before I knew of your very specific pain. I knew that you were in pain because I'm also in pain and that we are in pain under very similar systems. And this idea of a global fascism means that I was able to understand you at least a little bit and advocate for you. But then on top of that, I did also take the step of doing the learning, right? All of this implies that even though at the beginning of her journey here and understanding the person that she's writing the poem for, she does eventually speak the tongue that the, that the songs are being sung in. And she does eventually know specifically what that pain is. She gets involved with it. So this there's this idea of being bonded together at the very beginning, and then also understanding that there is specificity to each individual struggle, and that both of those things can be true at the same time, and both of those things can be honored at the same time, but that you can start, I think, from an idea of solidarity that comes from these really big, really global ideas, and then dig deeper to understand how those things are being enacted upon in individual countries, on individual people, and on specific groups of people. Yeah, I like that. Let's take that reading. That's the best reading. Okay, our next stanza. And Maggie, you're gonna you're gonna dive into this while I Google Passion Flower, <laughs> please. Okay. I saw you in the Passion Flower in roses full of flame, pure valley lily whose bower marks resemblance to your name. Maggie, take it away. What does this mean? I mean, I don't know that I know what it means. I don't know that I know what anything means, but my interpretation of what was happening here is kind of twofold. The first is that this was, I think, still written during a time period where the idea of the language of flowers was maybe a little bit more intentional than it is today in the 21st century, and was also still very much viewed as being a woman's language and woman's work. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if Jones was playing on that a little bit here, referencing some of these flowers. And then the other thing that I think that this stanza really brought to mind for me, not talking about necessarily the specific flowers in general, but the idea that that you and I have been exploring a lot recently, that colonialism and imperialism aren't just things that are happening to people, but are also happening to the land and the physical areas that we're a part of. And kind of recognizing, I saw you in the passion flower and the rose full of flame, pure valley lily whose bower marks resemblance to your name. To me, I think really just speaks this idea of, I saw you and your struggles in the land and reflected back in the land. And I also saw this fire to live and survive reflected in both of you as well. It's it's kind of all one and the same. So to me, those were kind of the two thoughts and ideas that struck me parallel while reading this stanza. I think that is a good reading. I also became an expert in the flower language 
while Maggie was talking, but not really. Okay, so Passion of the Flower, <laughs> Passion of the Valley, that's what it is, right? Passion Flower, Passion roses, Flower, and Pure Valley Lily. Right, 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 right. Okay, Passion Flower. I'm already fluent. Passion Flowers have to do with the the thorn of the crown of thorns that Jesus wore when he was up on the cross. Apparently, it's very big in Christian symbolism. So we got sacrifice. Roses, she tells us from fire, is already, you know, passion. And pure valley lily is purity. This is my whole assertion. I will not dig deeper. You know, that's actually really interesting. I didn't even think to look any deeper into the idea of the passion flowers being related to the crown of thorns that Jesus wore. I think that Spain is a Catholic country, question mark. Lots of question marks. Maybe Harmony's nodding. I, I We're going to go with a yes there. Spain is that very Catholic, but it was, has a lot of mosques too, because they called them the Moors back then, but there's a lot of heavily Muslim influences. But yeah, it's very Catholic, and it's been very Catholic for forever. Understood. That makes sense. The purity thing really strikes me as being interesting. I wonder if that's... I, I bet you it's supposed to be more of purity of intention, purity of heart versus purity of body. But it is, I think, interesting in context with the Catholicism aspect of it. I don't know what to make of that, but that is interesting. The roses to me seem the most straightforward, right? It's it's very passionate, like fiery passion for your cause. Love for your country. I don't actually know if Lily of the Valley has anything to do with purity, but I feel like it does. And that's good enough for me. I feel like I've seen this before. I did not look that up. Next stanza. There we go. Wait, no, I looked it up and it is specifically purity of the heart and soul. So just throwing that out there. Nice. See, my intuition's smart, you guys. Oh, wondrous Spanish sister, long locked from all your care. Listen while I tell you what you strained here and beckon all from far and near. I feel like that to me feels straightforward because long locked could be jail and she's maybe Jones is maybe also singing the anti-fascist song and is gathering the people to sing the song that she has identified are are Blanca Canales Torresola. Blanca Canales Torresola, the song that she's identified her singing. Yes. Go ahead, Maggie. Well, I think that this is one of the most clear stanzas of solidarity and activism to say, you know, you are you are long locked and I will continue to and I'm going to continue to do this work and others are going to continue to do this work. Not necessarily in your stead, though, because I do think that the call to there is a call to action here for the from the speaker of the poem, right? I'll tell you what you strain to hear and beckon all from far and near. And I think that that also implies that there's there's still work. There's that beckoning, that idea of spreading the message can still happen, even if the person who, who's been kind of locked up is, is in this long locked cage, has a different audience, shall we say, in their current context. <laughs> so I really like that because I think that that's the work is going to continue to move forward. And this is maybe one way that you can still continue to be a part of it even as you're being probably pretty unjustly imprisoned. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. Beautiful. All right. The next stanza is, We swear that we will never rest until they hear not plea, but sainted sacrifice, there's that sacrifice thing coming up again, to set a small proud nation free. 
The small proud nation is Abby, Puerto Rico, which we still need to set free, or at least give voting rights to. I mean, come on. <laughs> Sainted sacrifice. I don't know. Are are they Jesus? Is that is that what this is getting at? Yeah, I think that there is maybe a religious undertone here of this. It's almost the opposite of Manifest Destiny, that that is the setting of people free and the freeing of oppression is actually some sort of holy mandate or and I think that and either it's that religious or the implication is that it has that highest level of importance that it's of the highest possible order to do this work you know all right next stanza we're almost done you guys this is exciting oh anti-fascist sister you whose eye turns to stars still I've learned your wondrous secret source of spirit and of will I've learned that what sustains your heart, mind, and peace of soul is knowledge that their justice can never reach its goal. I feel like we've already discussed this stanza, but do you want to recap Mad Mags? Sure. I mean, I think that the recap here is really, again, like this is the thesis of the poem, that this idea that what it passes for justice from fascists and from imperialists is not actually justice and cannot ever reach its goal. And that this is the thing that drives people forward. And I think also something we didn't talk about is that this first line, you whose eyes turn to stars still, I've learned your wondrous secret. The importance of being able to look forward, to look up, to see the bigger picture is also a really important way to get through hardship. It can be a tool to get through hardship. And also I think the stars are often viewed as freedom because they're so far away and this idea of space is very it's so expansive right that I think there's this idea of keeping your eyes on the prize almost you keep your eyes trained to freedom and you know that your cause is just and that's how you keep moving forward and that's how I will keep moving forward and what we can prescribe to everybody else who is going through this sacrifice right who's doing this work and understanding that it's hard and understanding that sacrifice doesn't feel good that the goal of all of this is the understanding that it's worth it in the end i agree i have two other readings that i want to mention from the stars if your eyes are turning to stars you might be turning toward heaven and we've already talked a little bit about the religious themes so to me this kind of brings to mind the idea of creating a heaven on earth but that could be wistful thinking on my part. And also, we talked a lot about the globalized nature of this poem and the way that different ideas and different oppressions connect us. And we all look at the same night sky. I mean, not really because not really because different parts of the night sky are only visible on different parts of the earth, but that is an idea I've heard before. There is one sky, we are all staring up at it. Yeah, so those are my two additions. Maggie, do you have anything else you want to say about this wonderful poem? I like your two readings of the stars better, I think, especially the last one, as funny as that was. I think that, I don't know, I think that this poem, to me, does give a lot of extra meaning about Claudia Jones's life, but I do think that it makes me want to push up against that idea that her work doesn't stand on its own, that it's only useful in the context of her life, because I feel like, you know, Harmony and I purposefully went into this without a ton of context about the poem specifically. We tried not to rely too heavily on Carol Boyce Davies' interpretation of it, although of course we did mention it a little bit. And I think there is still a lot that you can get. And I think that the idea of poetry being used as a battle cry has been true for many, many centuries, and that this is just a really wonderful example of how 
this tool was playing out in the 20th century for this really important activist who's been purposefully forgotten basically by history because of the fact that she was a black anti-imperialist communist you know yeah i like your description too of it as a battle cry because i really do think that the meaning of this poem and i think that the poem holds more weight when it is spoken out loud and i think that is because of the form that we mentioned before i think it is kind of written like a chant so yeah i would agree with that i didn't know anything about how other people viewed joan's poetry but yeah that's a solid poem and i think that it's important if if it is the case if other people if other scholars would look at this and be like oh this is meant to be spoken i think that that's an important aspect too about why we might be taking poetry that that like this that is probably meant to be spoken and taking it out of the literary canon because this poem holds much more weight to me when spoken out loud yeah and i think the rhyme scheme in this is relatively simplistic but i think that that just lends to the chant part to me that felt very intentional this is a poem that reads well out loud that feels very rhythmic and I don't know I I guess to me and I don't know if there's an argument that it was overly simplistic necessarily I really just read that one very controversial poetry foundation article never seen so many angry comments on a poetry foundation article my friends let me tell you uh But I I do think that there is so much weight and so much value in reading it out loud. And I would be really curious if other scholars agree that this was meant to be written out loud because, yeah, it does just have that battle cry feel. It has that very weight and it feels like something that was very intentionally written to be said out loud. Do you have anything else you want to say to the people about this poem? I think that you guys should go look for it and go look for and go look it up because it's actually kind of hard to find on the Internet. I had to pull a copy directly out of the book that we were reading left of Karl Marx, which, you know, isn't a terrible thing. But I think that if more people show demand for Jones's work online, then it'll probably be more accessible to people. And I think that poetry like this and work like this is really important to be as accessible as possible, especially in our current day and age. Was this poem ever published? I thought I had read that this was an unpublished poem. You know, that's a great question that I don't actually know the answer to. But yes, demand Claudia Jones, uh, learn more about her. I don't feel like I know that much about her yet, but we're slowly chipping away. And find more people like Claudia Jones, who we don't know much about, but turned out that they were badass bitches. Okay, so this has been another episode of Maggie Teaches Harmony How to Analyze Poetry and helps her overcome her fear of not knowing how to read. Is there, What are we reading next week, Maggie? I think we might be reading Kaikei by Vaishnavi Patel, but I'm not actually entirely certain if we've made the jump on that. We'll see. We'll see how fast I can read and how lazy I'm feeling. Alrighty then, my friends. That is it. We'll talk to you next time. Goodbye! Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. 
See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.